Welcome to Blackbird episode number 54. My name is James, and today I am joined by Murray Sabrin. Murray is, of course, a kind of old-school libertarian, really. He recently wrote a book all about single-payer healthcare, but not single-payer in the sense of the government funding it, but single-payer as in the sense of the individual funding his or her own healthcare and how we can actually get to that kind of ideal, even in today's society. So... It's one of those kind of wonky episodes. I think you're going to like it. Before we get into it, let me tell you once again about Football Insider Edge. I remember when I was really little, I was not into football at all. I played football from fourth grade on, but I never watched it on TV. I didn't know anything about it other than like how to block and tackle because that's what I did. I played on both sides of the line. But my dad was a huge football fan. He was my coach. He was my little brother's coach. And also he played a lot of fantasy football. I was as confused by fantasy football as I was by regular football, to be honest. I'm still a little bit confused by it, although the guys over at Football Insider Edge are helping me to understand it. I haven't gambled any money yet, but I definitely am looking into it because I think that, you know, gambling is fun and it's, you know, it's kind of a safe way to take risks. If you love playing fantasy football or you're hopeless like me, I found you the perfect resource. Once again, it's Football Insider Edge. Whether you're a season-long player, whether you're focused on DraftKings or FanDuel, or whether you just like to make the occasional wager, Football Insider Edge provides you with research, tools, and in-depth analysis to take your game to the next level. They have a proprietary model, they've got matchup charts, they've got award-winning content, and they have a Slack channel full of people who, like you, are into fantasy football. The founders are libertarians, and they love this show, and they would love for you to join them in that Slack channel and in their program. For listeners of this show, they're offering a 20% discount on any monthly or full season plan. So head over to footballinsideredge.com and make sure to use offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to get signed up today. Once again, that is footballinsideredge.com, offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout to sign up today. And with that, here is my interview with Murray Sabrin. Murray, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, James. A great pleasure being with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So there's probably a handful of people who are in my audience who didn't just hear you on Tom Woods last week. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sort of, you know, just a basic overview of your bio. Well, uh, uh, for 35 years, I was professor of finance at Ramapo College uh, of New Jersey, one of the state colleges in uh, the Garden State. I retired in July on July 1st, 2020, and became emeritus, press, emeritus professor earlier this year for my contributions to scholarship and uh, professionalism at the college. Uh, I wrote the 1995, actually it was published in 1995, uh, Tax-Free 2000, The Rebirth of American Liberty, a manifesto of how we can really eliminate taxes in America and go to a totally voluntary, libertarian, free market uh, society. And I covered all the basic things that government now does that can be privatized um, because for everything that government does, there's either a private sector organization doing it or a nonprofit sector organization doing it, or the individual could do it. So there's no need to have all these mega programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and 
education, so on and so forth. So I laid that out in that book. And then I wrote uh, Why the Federal Reserve Sucks, um, published <laughs> two years ago, explaining how Bernanke and Greenspan kept on telling uh, the Congress in their testimony how great things are and the Fed has got things under control. When they gave, Meanwhile, they gave us the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble. So I explained that, and that book is available on Amazon. Why the Federal Reserve Sucks, it causes inflation, recession, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. That is a really clear synopsis of why the Federal Reserve is um, uh, counterproductive, uh, detrimental to sustainable prosperity, and why we need to go back to what the uh, some of the founders envisioned as hard money, what the Austrian school um, uh, proposes for having sustainable prosperity with no inflation and no business cycles. And then I had an idea to write a, a book on the welfare state, uh, the individual welfare state that provides benefits to people uh, to criticize the uh, corporate welfare and go into some other details. And then as I was starting to write this and putting together research for future chapters, Bernie Sanders comes along in 2016 with his Medicare for All. And that sent up a big red flag to me saying, if the government gets control of medicine in the United States, then we are in effect uh, almost at the end end of the road to serfdom that Hayek warned about in his 1944 book. So then I shifted gears and said, let me concentrate, this is before COVID, to -hmm. write a book on medical care, how we can have full coverage from conception to end of life. So the title of the book is Universal Medical Care from Conception to End of Life, the Case for Single-Payer System. Now that sounds like uh, a government single-payer system, but a single-payer system, there's another single-payer system that's called the Individual or Family approach to medical issues where you pay for medical care that you desire and you and the doctor are the primary medical unit, if you will, making decisions about what is the best way to obtain optimal health. And one of the things we uh, we conflate in this country is we talk about health care and medical care is the same thing. And I say, no, no, it's not the same thing. Health care is what we look at the mirror in the mirror and that's who's responsible for healthcare ourselves by eating right by exercising by hydrating enough by taking appropriate supplements if we feel they're necessary and doing all the things to have to have longevity without major illnesses and medical care is is when we seek a medical professional because we don't have optimal health care and therefore optimal health and therefore we need an intervention either with a a medication or surgery or some sort of procedure that will get us back to optimal health. So that's really the overall view of the book. And there's some other things uh, I talk about in the book that is critical to understanding where we are as a nation. So I'd be happy to discuss that with you, uh, James, today. Yeah, totally. So you said that you had started out writing a book on the welfare state. And indeed, the first chapter of the book is kind of just a a rundown of the history of the welfare state in America, which started way before the New Deal. From your telling, I believe, uh, obviously, the New Deal was sort of like a huge just explosion of welfare. But even before that, there were some semblance of a welfare state. Uh, How did it start and how did it get to where it ended up? Well, this is a fascinating story. And I based that uh, chapter, chapter one, on uh, Murray Rothbard, Mr. Libertarian, uh, one of the great Austrian economists uh, in in the world, who unfortunately uh, passed passed away at a very young age at 68 in 1995. And he wrote a magnificent article that was published in the Journal of Libertarian Studies on the origins of the welfare state in America. 
I urge everyone to read that article because he really lays it out about how these ideas from Prussia uh, were brought to America by uh, young uh, PhD students, and they started to build the foundation of the welfare state ideology in America. And that took time from the 1880s to the 1930s. That's 50 years. That's nearly three generations of of Americans, whether politicians, uh, public officials, academics, others started to embrace this this, uh, ideology of the welfare state where the government is supposed to be sort of a social service agency for society, whether at the federal, state, or local level. And uh, this is why ideas are so important and how they diffuse through society. Remember, this is before the age of the internet, before radio, before television, before the telephone. It was basically through pamphlets and newspaper articles and the universities as being transmitters of ideas and values. And so uh, I incorporated the ideas that, uh, that Rothbard acknowledged in his essay as the basis for to understand why medicine is so heavily involved, why government is so heavily involved in medicine, you have to understand the origin of the welfare state. Because once the ideology took root in America, it was only a matter of time before people said, well, people's welfare, that includes obviously retirement benefits, <laughs> health care, housing, food, just go down the list and we have all those programs in place. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, housing, government housing programs, public education, which was, of course, established before uh, the 1880s, around the um, uh, the 1820s and 40s. Uh, public education took a great leap forward with compulsory education laws. Mm-hmm. And all the other trappings of the welfare state, just look at the federal budget, see what the government spends its money on. Uh, uh, it's, it is those three big programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Now we have Obamacare, where the government is subsidizing private medical insurance. And it, it keeps on growing and growing and growing. And that's why I wrote this book, to at least begin to have a national dialogue discourse about the, to use terms today, is it safe and effective with the, with the uh, coronavirus uh, vaccines? Is, the, is uh, the welfare state sustainable and achieve the outcomes that the proponents say do. And the evidence is clear that it's not, especially in medical care, because we're spending mm-hmm. like $4 trillion a year on medical care, and the outcomes are pretty poor, given the state of, of the health of the American people today. How has the so welfare state... That's an overriding thing. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, how has the welfare state impacted poverty? Has it... I mean, well, if it has it all... Again, uh, yeah, there's a great chart that was uh, published, I think, by the Heritage Foundation that showed that the rate of poverty after World War II was declining virtually every year from 30 some odd percent or even higher down to about 12, 15% by the time the Great Society programs kicked in in the mid, late 1960s. Then what happened? The rate of poverty or the poverty level flatlined. In other words, it never went down from that level because of, and this is one of the themes of the book, the uh, sort of an implicit theme of the book, Instead of promoting financial independence, which, by the way, Johnson, President Johnson recognized that the welfare state, the Great Society programs, was supposed to be a temporary solution to mm-hmm. poverty, but financial independence should be the goal of every adult. And that's one of the things I'll be talking about um, uh, from now on, is that why uh, aren't the public officials talking about financial independence? I don't know any parent that teaches their children not to be financially independent. You get an education, you develop skills, and then you earn a living in order to support yourself and your family. 
that is the way I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, seeing my father go to work and uh, then changing careers and uh, bringing home a paycheck or um, uh, uh, cash from his uh, small business that he had, which was a New York City uh, driver operator in, in the 1960s and 70s and retired in the early 80s. So my whole view of the world was if you want something, you earn it by providing a good or ser- a good or service in the marketplace. I mean, this is simple, basic economics. That, that is the foundation of, I think, Austrian economics and good non-Austrian economics. Uh, I mean, you earn and then you can consume. Mm. You can't consume before you earn. That's what the welfare state teaches people, that you can be a consumer before you become, you can be a producer, whether as a worker or as, a, as an entrepreneur. So again, financial independence is the fa- should be the foundation of a free enterprise economy. And then from there, we take it to the next logical step. Well, if that's the case, then that reflects personal social responsibility. You have no claim on anyone else's income, and therefore you should not ask the government to get you income by making a claim on somebody else for the tax system or borrowing money or having affairs or print up money to bail out people like they did during uh, 2020 during the uh, COVID lockdowns. So again, you see this pattern developing is that you have a welfare state, more and more benefits now become entitlements when people are entitled to them. And the, the sad reality is so many people buy this across the political spectrum, except of course for libertarians. I mean, even conservatives talk about a social safety net as a, as a government, an appropriate government response to poverty and, um, and uh, hardship in society. And I have a chapter on the nonprofit sector of how the nonprofit sector can provide medical care to the indigent and low-income folks. In fact, I'm a founding trustee of a nonprofit health center in New Jersey. Um, the, the founder, uh, a doctor, um, heard about me and my interest in the nonprofit sector, and he invited me to be a founding trustee, which uh, now the uh, organization has been up and running. It gets no taxpayer dollars. It's all funded by voluntary contributions. And this is the model based upon volunteers in medicine that was founded in Hilton Head in the mid-1990s. And these should be in every community across the country. In other words, if Bill Gates and Mike Bloomberg want to take their billions of dollars to do something good for the American people, this is what they should be doing. Contact volunteers in medicine and work with them to create nonprofit medical centers across this nation so we can get rid of Medicaid and the nearly $600 billion that cost the American taxpayer. So how do you respond to somebody who says things like, you know, if it weren't for tax write-offs, nobody would donate to a charity or like, you know, charities would go under if, if it weren't for government grants. That's what I hear so much when I, when I talk about nonprofits. Well, from uh, some of the research I've seen is that people donate because of the tax deduction. They donate because of, they buy into the mission of the nonprofit, whether it's a uh, hospital, university, a uh, food bank, uh, uh, Habitat for Humanity, uh, you name it. Given all the nonprofits that are out there, and you can go to Charity Navigator and see which ones do great work because they rate the nonprofits that uh, file the uh, nine four, nine, Form 990. You can see exactly how uh, how well the nonprofit is doing in, uh, in, in its mission in terms of providing benefits at uh, um, very low administrative cost. So again, that's a canard. That's that's mm-hmm. um, that's another example of this collectivist mindset that you need to have a top-down, trickle-down welfare state to make things better when I'm suggesting that the evidence shows that the, even before the welfare state, we had the mutual aid societies of the 18th and 19th century in America, early 20th century, before the Great Depression, 
really um, uh, co-opted the mutual aid societies, uh, which are now called nonprofits, and, and um, got their claws into the nonprofits, some of which are dependent upon a substantial part of their uh, revenue from the government, whether it's federal, state, or local uh, tax dollars. So I'm saying the government doesn't have any more money than the money that's earned by taxpayers. So if people really want to help people, the best way to do it is directly through the nonprofit sector rather than having a huge bureaucracy in Washington or the state capital where the money has to be collected, it has to be dispensed, grants have to be written to the, to, to the federal agencies. That is a waste of resources. So if I give a dollar to a nonprofit and I see they're doing great work by using 90, 95% of those of my dollar to help people, that's a nonprofit I want I want to support. And my wife and I created a, a the Saver Charitable Trust several years ago. We funded it a couple of times. I expect to do more of it in the future. And we donate to uh, nonprofit organizations, primarily in economic education, like the Mises Institute and other nonprofit educational organizations and nonprofit health centers. I support three of them in New Jersey. Now that we're in Florida, I hope to uh, support some in my area or maybe help create one in where I live in Southwest Florida. What about if someone said, in, so if you if you like mutual aid society so much, why not just make one big nationwide mutual aid society and call it Medicare for all? <laughs> That's a great point. That is a great point. First of all, you need a huge bureaucracy to, to manage Medicare for all uh, because doctors have to uh, do the exact codes that they do. Again, it's a bureaucratic nightmare. Right now, if you go to a doctor's office, when I was growing up, the doctor had usually one nurse at the pediatric, at the pediatrician's office. That was it. One a receptionist nurse. That was it. Today, if you go to a doctor's office, which are basically no longer single uh, single uh, doctors or two doctors, they're basically a corporate uh, office. You have about a dozen or more people doing all the paperwork, from insurance companies to Medicare to Medicaid, uh, making sure they're filing the exact code to, to Medicare and the insurance companies, otherwise they're not going to get paid. Um, you don't need all these um, administrative support people if you had direct payment from the doctor to the patient, which is the way I saw medicine uh, when I was growing up, that my parents took me to the doctor or my brother, and they paid the doctor the $5 or the $7 for the office visit. There was no paperwork. And my father was a blue-collar worker making $3 an hour in the 1950s, and uh, it didn't break the family that there was a medical crisis. Then when my father had a major operation in 1961, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Major Medical paid for the operation. I never recall them having to say there was a problem in paying for the operation because before Medicare and Medicaid, uh, hospitals were quite reasonable in terms of what they were charging the insurance companies for these operations. So there wasn't a problem. What Medicare and Medicaid did was really raise the price of medicine. And as, well, and, uh, as you know, we've had a lot of monetary inflation since the 1960s, and therefore we've had a lot of price increases over the last uh, 56 years since 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were enacted. So when you add two things, the intervention in medical care uh, and the um, and the general inflation since the 1950s and uh, 1960s, uh, the cost of education and me- medical care are the two uh, highest uh, inflation rates since the 1960s. And, and uh, again, this is simple economics, is that when you throw money at a sector, prices are going to go up, whether it's education, housing, uh, medical care. So Medicare for all sounds neat, it sounds clean, it sounds efficient, but it's not. Because all the uh, single-payer systems that are out there, and they're not 
uh, are not doing well. They're financially in trouble. And one way they hold costs down, as we know, is they ration care severely, where in Canada, you may have to wait weeks or months for an MRI. You have to wait weeks or months for an operation, which in the United States you can get almost immediately, system in Canada. And we know a lot of Canadians who live um, uh, near the border come into uh, Washington State, uh, Detroit, um, come down to New York City, go to the Mayo Clinic in um, Mayo Clinic. Is that in your neck yeah, of the woods in it's Minneapolis? In Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah, Rochester. So they come to the, to the States and pay out of pocket because uh, the Canadian system won't pay for that. So again, uh, what we need to do is to re-examine everything that the medical system has today and, um, and, put, uh, and put the emphasis on the doctor-patient relationship instead of having these big bureaucratic uh, uh, notion. And one of the other things that I, I have to say now is that we can dismiss the whole notion of Medicare for all or even Medicare and Medicaid is nowhere in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, which authorizes the uh, legitimate functions of a government, can we find medical care? Nowhere. Now, unfortunately, the, the Constitution talks about the general welfare. That has been used by the collectivist, the statist, to yeah. say, okay, one thing for the general welfare is good medical care. So, therefore, we're going to have uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And that was the opening, I think, that that open-ended phrase of general welfare that allowed the, the courts to even to um, uh, call Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid constitutional. But, uh, again, there's nothing... Uh, if in the Constitution that authorized that, in fact, if if they were if there was honesty in Washington, which is a big stretch, when the prohibitionists wanted to ban alcohol, they knew they couldn't do it with the law, so they passed the constitutional amendment to ban alcohol. So it made it legal, but that didn't make it right. Just because right. it's legal doesn't make it right. Just as slavery was legal before um, uh, emancipation, that that didn't make it right. So the same thing with Social Security, uh, Medicare, and Medicaid. If you think this is, these are worthwhile projects, then amend the Constitution to give the federal government the authority to impose those programs on the American people. But there's a more fundamental reason that Medicare for All uh, is not a good system. It denies the concept of medical individuality, a one-size-fits-all approach to medicine. That's why I stress the doctor-patient relationship in my book. It, it has to be resurrected. Right now, when you go to a doctor's office, you're lucky if you get 15 minutes with the doctor because they have to have a certain amount of visits every day to, to pay for the overhead because mm -hmm. of all the support staff they have. And in Florida, where you moved down a couple of months ago, in order to get a, a visit, we had to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to get a visit as a new patient. And those visits are 40 minutes long to, for the doctor to know the patient and the patient to know the doctor. Now, I was told that uh, established patients get 15 to 20 minutes with the doctor, new patients get 40 minutes. That's it. So you may need the, to speak to the doctor as an established patient for a half hour, 45 minutes. No good. You can only get 15 minutes or 20 minutes with the doctor. That's not good medical practice as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And that's because of the third-party payer. Uh, they have to have so many visits per day in order to pay all the bills. The only time I've ever been like sick enough to go to a hospital. I think I, I got pretty pretty hands-on care from the doctor. This was back in the 90s. I do wonder what, uh, and you know, I mean, I was in his office for about an hour or so before he realized he needed to admit me to the hospital. Um, they referred me to an orthopedist and I saw that guy within, within a few minutes. Um, I wonder with as much bureaucracy as has been introduced into the system, um, even in the last 20 years or, or however long it's been since then, just what that experience would be like today. I, 
I hope that I, you know, make it into my dotage without having to go to the hospital, but you never know. Um, well, uh, that's one of the problems with hospitals. People get, get uh, more sick in a hospital because there are a lot of germs uh, mm-hmm. uh, in hospitals and, and, and they're uh, pretty virulent if, if, uh, if uh, you're not careful in a hospital. And of course, um, hospitals make mistakes. My sister-in-law was, uh, was a nurse. Her husband had a form of Parkinson's. Uh, he was in the hospital several times before he passed away. And if she didn't uh, oversee what was happening, he would have died much earlier because uh, she caught some errors in the medication and other uh, things that were happening in the hospital. So uh, that's why you have to be have to have a good patient advocate, whether a spouse or a close family friend uh, or a close relative. Otherwise, um, uh, you can um, you can have a severe uh, consequence in a hospital. And uh, of course, when that happens. Um, uh, either the person gets sick or they can die prematurely. And that's why it's, it's important to know your own body, know the person's medical history, so you can uh, question what the doctor's doing, what the nurse is doing regarding medication. I'm looking at uh, someone just happened to post a photograph of a receipt from someone's hospital stay back in 1955. It was a baby's delivery. They were in the hospital for three days. And those three days, the room and board and nursing service cost $27 and then delivery room, care of the infant and medication and stuff. The bill for three days in the hospital racked up to $59.95 in 1955. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $600 today. So still, that's like maybe a quarter of what you would spend. I I mean, I don't even know. I have no idea how much it costs to deliver a baby today. So it's not just inflation. It's also the cost of bureaucracy, the cost of doctor's medical liability insurance, the cost of yeah. uh, the doctor's education, the, the yeah, I think I said the bureaucracy and all the staff at the hospital and things like that. Um, why do you think that, I mean, this seems so obvious to me and uh, probably to you as well. Um, like I, I don't need to write, I don't need to read a book to see this. Uh, although, <laughs> you know, obviously we all should. Um, <laughs> uh, why do you think that's not self-evident to so many people? Well, again, here's another example of the change in culture in our society from the doctor-patient relationship with less third-party payer for um, for something as basic as a, a baby delivery, which usually is not an insurable event unless you have some extenuating circumstances where the mother goes into crisis or the baby goes into crisis and there has to be extraordinary care. That could be an insurable event where insurance would cover the cost of it, but have, but getting a baby delivered should be an out-of-pocket expense. And as, as you pointed out, the cost of 1955 was so minimal that the average person could afford it. Uh, it wasn't something that they um, that they had to wring their hands about saying, how are we going to afford this, um, uh, this baby delivery when you paid for it out-of-pocket? Or in, uh, I guess in 1955, if you couldn't pay it all at once, maybe the hospital would pay would allow you to pay it out over several months, which I think is what people would do in those days. Sure. That uh, if uh, here was a bill for two hundred dollars or whatever the cost was, and if you could pay it, great. If not, you may be able to pay it over three, four, five months. And for the average family, that was fine. Again, here's something else that needs to be talked about. If you're bringing a child in the, into the world, something that no one wants to discuss because it is very politically incorrect. You should have the means and resources to support the delivery of that baby and the and the uh, uh, food and housing, clothing and medicine of that baby. Otherwise, you're saying, hey, I want to have a child. 
this couple wants to have a child, but we can't afford that to pay for that child. So therefore, we're going to ask the government to tax people so we can have a baby. Well, it seems to me personal social responsibility personal social responsibility means that you bring a child into the world and you are responsible for the financial well-being of that child and the medical well-being, not a third party, uh, particularly your, your neighbor or the government that's going to tax your neighbor to do so. And I think here is another example of the change in culture where in the old days when families had three, four, five kids, I don't think it went, it went through anyone's mind that my neighbors were responsible for me raising my children financially. And I think that's the change in culture we've had mm -hmm. that we've got to really, really address because it's, uh, it's changed the nature of uh, relationships in this country between not only the individual and the government, but the individual with their uh, community. The community is not responsible for anyone's well-being. It's, in other words, it doesn't take a village to, to, um, to uh, raise a family. I would say it takes a village through a voluntary way to do so. That's why nonprofits sector is the way to help people in, I think, a humane, compassionate, non-coercive manner. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book. I think it takes a great deal of societal trust as well. So in a country of 300 million people where nobody knows anybody, I mean, you don't even know your neighbors most of the, half the time, who wants to support these people? So it really does take a heavy hand to do it. I mean, you know, if I have a neighbor who's down on their luck, it, where I live now, I don't know it. If I lived in a small community or a, a village, so to speak, I would know it. Yeah. The rest of the village would know it. And the person would be, wouldn't be incentivized to beg for money because that's, that's embarrassing. Um, but the people in the village would be incentivized to lend a helping hand because, you know, they don't want to see the person embarrassed, first of all. But also, the, in, a, in a high trust community like that, uh, they, they, do, they do want to help one another because it, you know, it, it lends to societal cohesion. Yeah, uh, one of the best books on this subject is uh, David Bieto's book. It's uh, From Mutual Aid Societies to the Welfare State. I think it's the title of the book, which I referred to it in chapter one, mm -hmm. where he points out prior to the Great Depression, uh, people were connected by ethnicity, nationality, religion, uh, work, trade association. They did medical insurance. They did unemployment benefits. This is all before the, uh, the uh, New Deal. In other words, there was a very vibrant social service sector in place across all ethnic and racial groups. That's the amazing thing is that there was tremendous, tremendous caring and compassion at the local level where it should be. So you know who's, who's down on their luck and you can help them get through a difficult period in their life, whether it's through illness, whether it's through abandonment of the father in a family, uh, the community would come together and help the people. Remember the old movies you'd see, barn raising events in, mm -hmm. in, in uh, America? That's co the community getting together in order to help someone become financially independent by having a, a farm with a barn. Uh, and you see this, I guess, in the Amish community as well and other uh, fairly um, uh, closed communities where they rely on each other for uh, a whole host of issues. So this is part of the ethos of American society, I, uh, people uh, refer to the Tocqueville when he came to America in the 1820s and 30s and wrote about the uh, great uh, voluntary associations in America. And I think that is one of the strengths of America. When people talk about American exceptionalism, I think this is what they should be talking about, is how people get together at the local level voluntarily and uh, uh, provide social services without the uh, the heavy hand of the government or without coercion.
think uh, we have to go back to that ethic. And uh, that's why I wrote this book to, to at least point out that there's a better way of providing medical care to the unfortunate among us um, than having this huge welfare state. How did health insurance get tied to employment? Well, the, the primary reason was uh, wage price controls during World War II. Here's another example of the unintended consequences of war. Because of wage price controls, employers couldn't raise wages. So what, one of the things they offered to attract workers to their business was uh, medical insurance. And so then you get the, um, the um, uh, third party paying for medical insurance when things should be paid out of pocket. So from that foundation of uh, medical insurance um, and employment tied together, which makes for what? A very undynamic labor market because some mm-hmm. people don't like to leave their jobs because of the medical insurance benefits that they're getting. Remember, we don't get life insurance, uh, property and casualty, auto insurance through workplace. So why should we get medical insurance through the workplace? These are things we should be paying out of pocket, which most people do. And I think we have to go back to that uh, uh, notion. And now, now the employers can provide extra income to employees so they can purchase insurance that they need and also have the resources to pay for out of pocket. That's why, of course, we should reduce taxes so people keep their own money. And uh, and people have to learn that they're responsible for their medical care, not their employer and not, their, uh, not the, the government. But they are responsible, and that's why we should reduce taxes as much as possible. We should make sure that people have uh, the ability to finance what they need. But employers are now taking the initiative around the country and are changing the way they provide medical care for their employees and eliminating traditional insurance and contracting directly with um, uh, MRI companies and others. I'll give you a great example at the a free market medical association conference that I attended a few weeks ago, I met the VP of one upper Midwest company, in fact, in the neighboring state of Minnesota. And he pointed out that they put together a program where employees could get MRIs directly from a provider who comes by in this huge van and does the MRI for $400. Now, I don't recall if the employee paid for the $400 or the company paid for the $400, but that's irrelevant. $400 for the MRI. That same truck goes down the street to the hospital and the hospital charges $6,000 for the same same MRI. In other words, the hospital pockets $5,600 just for having the MRI in their premises and and they bill the insurance company, whatever they bill in order to... uh, get reimbursed. So even if they, they get reimbursed half of what they're charging, they're pocketing a ton of money for not doing anything just by having the MRI truck on their property. This is just one small example of how the free market is delivering medical uh, care or medical testing at a fraction of what the big hospitals are charging or even a community hospital is charging. There are so many examples of this. Uh, Keith Smith, the co-founder of the Free Market Medical Association in Oklahoma, he has a surgery center. Uh, I think it's in Tulsa or Oklahoma City. I forgot exactly which town. But I spoke to a doctor here in my neck of the woods in Southwest Florida. She referred one of her patients who didn't have insurance, I think for a hip operation. The local hospital was going to charge $20,000 for the hip operation. So she uh, had him contact uh, the surgery center of Oklahoma. And to travel from Florida to Oklahoma, the travel, the uh, the uh, stay in the uh a hospital or a hotel plus the surgery was five thousand dollars. Wow! 
I mean, when you hear stories like that, James, it boggles the mind why employers and individuals are not clamoring for reducing insurance-based medicine or medical insurance in in this country and relying more on cash payments because uh, it would reduce the cost of medical care by 60 to 80% or more. Uh, Think about it. We're now spending $4 trillion a year. If, if If we can free up $2 trillion a year, you know how much money that would mean for money in people's pockets, money is the bottom line for businesses to grow and expand? I mean, we would solve the unemployment problem in the country. We would we would solve the savings problem in the country. We would uh, solve the uh, the, the uh, capital investment uh, that we need in this country to grow the economy. It would be such a boon to this country to reduce medical care costs that uh, I hope this book could generate enough interest to say there are alternatives to the current structure, and we need to seriously. Uh, go down that road in order to provide better better medical care and uh, at, at a much lower prices than today. One thing you mentioned a few times is, you know, prior to the current kind of regime, medical regime, people would pay out of pocket for, you know, routine things like going to get a checkup or, you know, maybe, maybe a, a, like getting your blood pressure checked or whatever. Sure. But the, so insurance really only covered catastrophic care. Right. Do you think that insurance providers knew that by covering preventive care that like what we're seeing now would have happened? Or do you think that they genuinely thought, oh, this is a way to keep healthcare costs low because we're, we're catching things before they happen? No, I, I think the, the game has been rigged with the insurance companies taking so much money in premiums and uh, they contract with the hospitals for these co- for these prices, and some of these prices are just extraordinarily high. And uh, and the insurance companies pay out whatever uh, they can contract with the hospitals, and therefore premiums have to go up in order to pay for that. And employers are at the mercy because they don't want to lose good employees, so they're paying usually anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to cover a family of four for medical insurance, or sometimes even higher, when I think that cost could go down tremendously uh, by by providing an account for families to put that money in for routine medical care and mm-hmm. then have a catastrophic co- uh, policy for co- uh, coverage that would uh, pay for major hospitalizations, whether it's cancer treatment or a heart operation or any other type of operation where you're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But even those costs could go down, given what the Surgery Center of Oklahoma does. And there's another company called Medibid. It's sort of like the um, eBay of medical care costs is where doctors bid for uh, uh, patients to uh, uh, get them quality medical care at lower prices. So again, innovation is occurring in medical care. I think it just has to accelerate the next few years, because what the Biden administration is doing is expanding Medicaid and Medicare. And that's the wrong route to go. We need to go the opposite way and give people more uh, uh, medical freedom, if you will, to uh, to choose what's the best course of action rather than the government taking on more and more responsibility, which means more and more expenditures and therefore either higher taxes or more borrowing and more printing of money by the Federal Reserve to buy up this debt. So uh, insurance companies have really rigged the game and employers have been at their mercy. And um, right now we need to move away from that traditional third payer model. And it's already happening. The revolution is already happening. We just have to accelerate. Mm. 
Yeah, I've even talked to some socialist friends, um, Bernie Sanders supporters and the like, who when they hear about, for instance, uh, the boutique care, um, uh, I forgot the name of it, where you pay you pay a monthly fee. Uh, and direct primary care. Direct primary care. Thank you. Yeah, they, they're fully supportive of that. They think, you know, look, I, I if uh, if you want to pay out of pocket, then that seems like the best model to me. But they also, it's kind of like private school, you know, like if you want to pay out of pocket to go to to go to your expensive tuition based high school, yeah. uh, like I went to, but my parents still paid the property tax for the public schools. Right. Um, so that right. that's kind of that's kind of where the breakdown is. And actually, you know, when you just I like I'm a millennial, and when <laughs> when you brought up Medibid to me, like my initial gut reaction was, oh my god, that's so crass. The idea of healthcare being a commercial good rather than just like something that you need to get. I have like a visceral reaction to it. And I'm a, I'm as free market as they come. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Rothbardian ANCAP and everything. So uh, there, there's a big hurdle there. There's a big emotional, emotional hurdle mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to overcome for a lot of people. What about like a public option as a stopgap um, where the government is competing with private insurers? Well, the, the, that's, uh, that's problematic because uh, it's not, quote, an equal playing field because the government has so many resources at their disposal. And, they, and the problem, one of the problems, James, is the government dictates to doctors what they can and cannot do, what they can prescribe, what they cannot prescribe. And uh, we need to really separate medicine from the state, just as we, uh, as someone once remarked, war is too important to be left to generals. <laughs> My contention is that medical care is too important to be left to politicians and bureaucrats and insurance companies. I think that's that's the mantra we should be um, we should be uh, articulating is that medical care is a very personal decision. Some people um, uh, think that going to the doctor frequently is a good thing, or getting uh, a lot of medication uh, uh, is, a, is is okay. But um, as we know, doctors basically treat symptoms, and the holistic approach is where you treat the underlying problems of what causes the symptoms is what most is what some people are starting to feel is more important for their for their health than to uh, just to get a pill from a doctor and uh, and mask the uh, underlying problems so again medical care is a very personal thing and that's why I bristle when I hear uh, politicians and government doctors uh, tell us what we should or should not be doing and um, I've had relationships with doctors for many decades when we were living in New Jersey for uh, more than 40 years, and now we have to establish new relationships in Florida. But uh, um, one of the things I became very skeptical about, and I think this is a a good anecdote to explain where I'm coming from. In the mid 80s, my father wasn't feeling well, and he went to his doctor, and the doctor did all sorts of tests, including an EKG, and told him he had emphysema and how to live with it. And um, a week or two later, I forgot exactly how much later it was, we went to visit him on a Friday night, I think, and his uh, skin color was gray. And here's someone who survived World War II in his native Poland, um, fought gallantly for five years to uh, uh, repel the Nazis, and he was falling apart before my eyes at age 70, 71. And um, a day or two later, he had to be rushed to the hospital, and they did an EKG, and they found that he had a mild heart attack. The, do- the doctor misdiagnosed his situation, and he nearly died. And so uh, when it comes to medical care, you've got to ask questions to make sure that uh, you're getting the correct information, whether it's on uh, uh, diagnosis of a test or, um, 
or medication that you may or may not need. And uh, I was always trusting of doctors. And recently, I went to a doctor for a second opinion for an ailment I had, and I had some minor surgery to uh, address a situation that I thought medication was going to uh, address, but it wasn't. So um, you've got to keep on asking questions about your medical care because uh, in, the, in the final analysis, you are responsible for your medical care. And that's why people need to be educated. In, in this day and age of the internet, you can get information about medical care on WebMD and other websites, um, whether it's a traditional medicine or holistic approaches. But you should know your own body. You should, your body tells you things that uh, you wouldn't know, uh, pain here or pain there. And m- my theory is if a pain doesn't go away within five days, it's time to see a doctor. Mm. Because usually if you have a pain and it's something transitory, it's going to go away in a few days or the body's going to heal itself. If it doesn't go away in five, seven days, depending on where it is, you go call up the doctor and you find out, hey, I need to see you. I'm having this pain and I need to uh, have you look at it. That's the way it should be. And uh, instead of using the emergency room, Unfortunately, uh, medical care is just so topsy-turvy today, and doctors are getting burnt out, though. We found out coming to Southwest Florida, uh, there are doctors that are no longer accepting new patients. Mm -hmm. And um, we need good primary care physicians because they're the ones that can really help people optimize their health care or their health. And uh, the the primary care doctor is supposed to know you literally inside out uh, by really getting to know who you are, your mental and physical well-being, and uh, work with you to, to make sure that you stay in optimal health so you're not like my parents were in their last years of life. Uh, we, we, uh, I would visit them, and one of their kitchen cabinets was devoted to medication. Look at the mini pharmacy. And that's the time I wish I had gone to medical school rather than graduate school because you could <laughs> look at the medications and see, are there any interactions here that they should be, um, they should be concerned about? And uh, again, uh, being on medication for a short period of time uh, makes sense if it's going to uh, uh, take care of a, a medical issue but, uh, or a health issue. But otherwise, uh, medication we know has, uh, has, can have serious uh, side effects, which the uh, TV ads tell us constantly that if you're taking this medication, by the way, here are all the side effects. And sometimes the side effects sound worse than the illness. Yeah. So you've got to be very, very knowledgeable and um, and um, inquisitive about the medical care in the United States today. I've been seeing the same doctor since about 2001. I got his name from a gay magazine here in the Twin Cities because I'm gay. And so I wanted to see a gay doctor. You know, I mean, I was 19. Uh, that's what you do. Um, here I am, 38. He, like, he knows what medications I take if he looks at my chart. We would probably recognize each other if we ran into each other at the grocery store. But we have very little personal interaction. He refers to me as Mr. Gentleman. I call him Dr. Myers. Uh, we're not on a first name basis, which I actually, I, I was talking with a, with a homeopath um, on a recent episode and she was talking about the difference between homeopathy and medical doctors um, and like why, uh, why it is that, you know, doctors and patients aren't on a first name basis. Um, even if you've known each other for decades, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's a very strange relationship to me. Um, and uh, the kind of ca- straw that broke the camel's back for me anyway was uh, I was like suffocating on my mask at the gym on, the, on, a, on a treadmill. So I pulled it down to catch my breath, take a sip of water and, and just like breathe easy for a minute. Uh, you know, there was nobody around. It was totally social distance because it was pandemic. You know, God forbid anyone should be near anyone else. 
and who I assume was the gym manager because he wasn't in a he wasn't in a uniform, but he was certainly had an air of authority about him. Came over and told me that I had to pull up my mask or I couldn't work out. And I was like, "Well, I'm just trying to catch my breath. Like, I'll pull I'll pull it back up. I promise." But he, I mean, he kicked me off the treadmill. And so I told my doctor about that. And rather than, you know, say, oh yeah, you know, you're with asthma, it's probably a good idea for you to um, take it easy at the gym where you got to wear a mask or just like any kind of medical advice whatsoever. Instead, his response was, oh, that was probably all in your head. Like as if it was a psychosomatic breath problem because of a mask. Just, just, just This insane. to me, it, yeah, I mean, wearing a mask, during a, a gym workout is uh, probably uh, one of the, um, how, how can I say this? I'm not going to be polite. It's one of the most idiotic things I've ever heard in my life because <laughs> when you're working out, because I go to the gym, we were at the gym this morning um, on the treadmill. There's no mask in uh, in uh, our development here in Florida. Yeah. And um, my wife wasn't wearing a mask. Other people were wearing a mask. I mean, the whole point of, of, of the workout is that you want to get enough oxygen in you so you so you will not be compromised. Wearing a mask means that you're basically breathing in your own carbon dioxide and mm-hmm. other things that you're expelling, which is the whole point of exhaling, is that you're getting rid of things that uh, your body doesn't want. So wearing a mask while you're exercising, to me, is, is ludicrous. I mean, I would never do it. I would tell the, the, uh, the gym guy, listen. Tell me the science behind wearing a mask in the gym. What's the, what's, what's the physiological uh, positive aspect of wearing a mask in a gym? Otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about because the whole point is your body needs oxygen when you're working out. And um, this, is, this is what I'm afraid COVID has done is yeah. it has created a lot of bad, bad uh, medical um, protocols. And um, I, I just find it repugnant that people who are not doctors are telling you what to do when it comes to uh, either a vaccine or other things because uh, uh, medical protocol should be handled by the doctor and patient, not by the president or the uh, or Fauci or the head of the CDC. Uh, they don't know your medical history. They don't know your, your psychological state. So for them to tell us what we need to do is, I think, uh, the height of arrogance. This is where we are in America today, the height of medical arrogance. I was just on a uh, radio show, uh, Political Roundtable, and there were three uh, lawyers on the roundtable, one other academic, and they were all gung-ho the vaccine. And I said, uh, don't practice medicine without a license. You cannot tell people that they should be taking a vaccine when you don't know their medical history. And I think that is really uh, arrogant on, on people because I don't tell people to take the vaccine or not to take the vaccine. All I tell you, all I tell people is, are you fully informed about the consequences of this vaccine? And then you have to make your own decision. Yeah. That's the way it works when it comes to medicine. You are in charge of your body, not the government, not uh, Fauci, not the um, lawyers who think they know everything about everything. Uh, it, it has to do with uh, you and your doctor. And even when your doctor makes a recommendation, which they have to me in the past, sometimes I don't agree with it because I get second opinions. I, I, I've been working with a naturopath for uh, nearly 20 years, and he's given me some very good advice about what I need to do to address some of the issues I was facing over the years. And he helped me out quite a bit. And I think at my age, um, I'm only taking one um, prescription medicine, which I don't pres- consider a uh, medicine because you could get a similar product over the counter, which I was before the uh, prescription. 
but it's worked out very nicely. And um, and so far, as they say, knock on wood, uh, at my age, there are people who can barely walk, can barely uh, uh, breathe, who uh, are on several medications. And I've always felt since I was uh, young that I'm responsible for my well-being, not somebody else. And I've done everything you could possibly do to stay healthy. And um, so far, so good. So uh, as they say, you knock on wood and you will hope the best uh, because, um, uh, as you know, our great friend Robert Wenzel passed away in uh, May in his sleep. And he and I talked frequently. I talked to him uh, two days before he passed away. He would go to the gym uh, often. He was in good health. I don't think he had any uh, underlying conditions, and he passed away in his sleep. And that was a shock to me at age 63 uh, that he passed away like that. And uh, that's the roll of the dice as a human being. You just never know when that horrible event could occur. Uh, there are accidents on the road constantly. We don't know when we step out of the house and into our car that uh, there won't be some driver going through a stop sign or a red light. There are risks all around us. Uh, I mean, the number of people who die in the shower is, is quite high in the United States, relatively speaking. Uh, people who fall in the house, uh, fall down the stairs. I mean, there are risks all over the place. So when it comes to COVID, uh, I just have a brief chapter on COVID because it was written at the end of last year. Sure. Um, we have to take responsibility for our well-being and we have to make sure that uh, uh, we do take the proper precautions. Uh, but the most important thing we can do is to build up our immune system. And that's something that I think the American people in general um, have lacked, is that building up their immune system. And I think that is one of the underlying uh, problems uh, with the COVID is that people have compromised the immune system, especially the elderly nursing homes. Yeah, the, uh, the sort of the established medicine, medical regime, I, I keep calling it that, that almost entirely dismisses the role of the immune system because i mean obviously when you have a strong immune system you need fewer pharmaceuticals i mean you need fewer pharmaceuticals well who makes less money the pharmaceutical industry so it they they do have a financial incentive to push this this kind of over medicalization of of society do, do you i mean do you agree with that or do you oh, there's think no question about it in fact not, not only are we over medicated we're over insured that's another mm-hmm. theme of the book is that we don't need insurance for, for going to the doctor for this ache or that ache. We would need a, um, insurance for, for basic medical tests, which would be a fraction of the cost they are today. In fact, doctors are doing a lot of these tests uh, in their own office at a fraction of what the, um, what the hospitals or these uh, uh, laboratories are charging. So we could, uh, like I said, uh, we could reduce medical costs enormously if people were in charge by direct paying, whether for office visits through direct primary care or some other fee-for-service uh, basis and paying for these tests, which are which can be had for a fraction of what the hospitals are charging. I mean, when, when I heard the story about $6,000 for a hospital MRI, when you can get the same exact test for $400, that speaks volumes of how the system is anti-patient, anti consumer, anti-family, anti-small business, and anti-big business. I mean, businesses have to take uh, this issue on uh, head on and, and not be afraid to buck the uh, medical establishment. And uh, that's what I think will happen as time goes on. And that's the theme of the next book I'm writing for uh, Business Experts Press uh, for next year is to uh, point out how we can have 
medical insurance and the marketplace uh, at a much lower cost than talk about all the alternatives that are out there. I mean, this, this is what's great about going to these conferences. You meet the doctors and the uh, uh, and business executives who are not waiting for any legislation or any uh, edicts from uh, um, Washington or the state capital. They're, they're just saying, hey, we've got a problem here. Our medical cost expenses are just through the roof. We've got, we got to do something about it and to, and to help our uh employees be, become uh, uh, more productive and, and healthier. And that's what they're doing. At the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of sort of more like small government minarchist libertarians were saying that, you know, this is this is one instance where a centralized authority is justified, is during a pandemic, there should be a public health establishment. Do you think that... Um, despite the kind of disaster that COVID's, the response to COVID has become, do you think that they're right? Or would you say that they've been shown to be wrong in the last year and a half? No, I, I think the evidence is quite clear is that uh, people, uh, nursing home residents were the most vulnerable, so they should have been protected as best they can. We know what happened in New Jersey, uh, New York, and other uh, states. Governors ordered uh, COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes where it spread like wildfire. So uh, the response, I think, has been the greatest overreach in, in my lifetime, uh, certainly one of the worst episodes in American history, is that there was no reason for the lockdowns. There was no reason for uh, killing small business in this country where so many businesses could not reopen. And the, and, and the, account, and the, uh, and the other effects, the unintended consequences, was the Federal Reserve just printed <laughs> trillions of dollars last year, which is now showing up in the rates of inflation in 2021 and probably in 2022. And of course, government spending went through the roof under Trump and now it's going, going through the roof under uh, Biden. So this is not a, a partisan issue. This is, this is how government reacts to, quote, a public health issue. I mean, we've had the flu every year where tens of thousands of Americans have died. And um, there was no masking. There was no lockdowns. And uh, I taught it, uh, in a business school for 35 years in a building with no open windows where students would be sneezing and coughing during flu season in the hallways in the classroom. And, I, and then 35 years, I never got the flu. I never got, and I had one flu shot in 35 wow. years. It's because I think my immune system was warding off all these, all these bad uh, influenzas that were going around. Of course, you get colds. That, that always happens. You always get a sore throat when you're teaching in the classroom uh, several times a week with uh, very poor ventilation conditions. But it just shows you that if you're in generally good health, you can withstand uh, the flu season fairly easily. And uh, like I said, I've been I've been following a protocol since um, uh, a year and a half ago when the naturopath recommended my my friend the naturopath recommended uh, additional supplements, and I've been taking these regularly with my wife. And um, and then uh, a new product that we bought that's been advertised on Fox uh, Balance of Nature. You get your fruits and vegetables in these capsules to build up your immune system as well. So again, it's a matter of doing what you think is appropriate for yourself in order to um, help build up your immune system. And uh, when I heard the term that really got me, James, last year, when I heard governors say non-essential businesses are to close, oh yeah, I said to myself, who are they to determine what is a non-essential business? Every business is essential because it provides income to the owner and the workers. This is the arrogance of the political class in America to, to single out businesses as non-essential 
when all the big box stores were open, thank goodness, and the supermarkets were open. Can you imagine if they closed down the big box stores and the supermarkets and there would be really rationing of food? There'd be a revolution. But meanwhile, they closed down the Main Street businesses and many of them couldn't come back. Um, one of the terrible stories at the end of uh, the, uh, the spring semester of 2020, my last semester teaching, it was the end of April, the last day of class, a Wednesday night securities investments class. One of the students said, I'd like to speak to you with my father after class. We had a Zoom meeting because that's the only way we could teach uh, the spring of 2020. And he said his father just put in a lot of money in a restaurant near Times Square and they, he couldn't open up. And he asked me for advice. I said, you've got to see an attorney because he signed a 10-year lease for this new restaurant in the Times Square region, the Times Square area in Manhattan. So you can imagine what the cost of that lease was. I mean, that's not... That's pretty pricey property in uh, Midtown Manhattan. So I don't know what the outcome was, but uh, and that is probably one of the worst horror stories you can hear is that you sink a lot of money into a restaurant. The, the government says you can't open it up and now you got it stuck with a 10-year lease. So what do you do? And if you sign for it personally, then you're personally liable for a 10-year lease. That could be what? 10 years in Manhattan, uh, if it's 200000 a year, talking about a $2 million or more uh, liability. Of a of, restaurant uh, my, whose future is still yeah. uncertain. I mean, I, I mean th- th- this is how insane it was with these lockdowns. And um, there was no reason for it. Um, we, kn- we know the, what the profile was of people who uh, were hospitalized. They were very poor condition. They had comorbidities. In fact, uh, there's one health writer who writes on NewRockwell.com who thinks that um, uh, COVID is in many ways uh, a vitamin deficiency, a B vitamin deficiency. And uh, he's pointed out the similarities between this this vitamin B deficiency symptoms and the COVID symptoms. They're eerily similar. Mm. So uh, again, I go back to the, to the old adage, if uh, we are what we eat, and if you eat properly, and you have the proper um, buildup of your immune system, you're going to be pretty much protected from the pathogens that are all around us. I mean, the viruses are all around us. And that's why the COVID positive test, uh, what does that mean if you're COVID positive? Uh, Because they were running the test at very high cycles. Mm -hmm. And so people who had pathogens in their system are winding up COVID positive. I I know a bunch of people in New Jersey and other parts of the country have had COVID and they they didn't have any extraordinary measures. They weren't hospitalized. I know one person in New Jersey that was terribly hospitalized, that was hospitalized right at the beginning of COVID, and he was intubated and he was in bad shape for um, a couple of months, and he's gaining his uh, strength and health back. But the people I know, including a couple of 80 year olds, um, uh, got through it without a problem. Uh, a friend of mine down here in Florida who had his, has an underlying condition uh, got COVID. He and his wife, a nurse, they got COVID. Uh, they got, they, um, got the Z-pack and uh, uh, they went through COVID uh, without a problem. So then there are people who get very mild um, uh, symptoms. And so when we hear how bad COVID is, the thing that strikes me, how could you be asymptomatic with such a virulent virus? It doesn't make any sense to me that if here are all the symptoms of COVID and you don't have any of them, how could you have COVID? It doesn't make any sense that you're a carrier, but you don't have any symptoms of coughing and sneezing and chest congestion and what have you, and um, and fatigue. Well, if those are the if, if those are the symptoms, and you don't have any of them, how could you really be uh, a carrier of COVID? They just make no sense uh, from a common sense perspective. So, um, as you know, there are a lot of things on the internet of doctors who've been treating COVID with uh, non-protocol approaches. Um, 
there's one podcaster who uh, uh, was with her husband uh, in the hospital. He was diagnosed with pneumonia, and the doctor said, the nurse said he had COVID pneumonia, and she said, no, he didn't. And so they treated him for a couple of days, and he was released, but they were really ready to intubate him, put a tube down his throat, and put him on a ventilator, and which we know is not the best thing for COVID patients, uh, because uh, from what I read recently is that uh, a vast majority of COVID patients that go on ventilators die. So what's that relationship all about? Uh, why are people dying on, on an approach that's supposed to save people's lives when it's costing them their lives? So again, there are a lot of things coming out. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. has a new book coming out in November about Fauci and um, how he has um, not done a great job as the head of uh, his organization for the past uh, 40, 50 years. So again, I think... Uh, the mainstream media have been derelict in their in their reporting and not reporting what's going on around the world with protests against these lockdowns and what and why they're not reporting on alternative treatments. And this shows you the stranglehold Big Pharma has on the media. So I guess to kind of close it out, I, I, I feel like it's probably pretty unlikely that um, any legislative solutions to this problem are going to come about. There's there's not much political appetite to repeal Obamacare. Um, there's certainly not much political appetite to uh, install some sort of free market government solution. I don't really know how to how to word that. Rand Paul frequently will introduce legislation that goes nowhere to try to free up the medical market. So, given that, um, aside from like just a complete societal collapse that makes Congress go away. What are some what are some real like concrete things that can happen that we can that we as like normal people, not legislators, can do to try to bring about this kind of vision that you've laid out in your book? Well, that's why I want people to buy the book because uh, all the royalties will be going to support free market organizations and nonprofit health centers. So we can do this through the. Uh, what, what, what has been called civil society, where we, we don't try to get a, a, a government solution, but we just have a, an outpouring of grassroots support for saying enough is enough. I want to take control of my medical care. I want to work with my uh, physician and physicians if we need a specialist to, to create an optimal uh, health situation for me and my family. And so that's why I'm, I'm promoting this book as vigorously as I can. And I really appreciate this opportunity to reach, hopefully, lots of people and get them to buy the book because the royalties uh, for the ebook are very generous. And I can uh, use those funds to uh, deposit in our Sabrin Charitable Trust account and then distribute them to free market organizations and nonprofit health centers. So I think I'm doing my part, which uh, is being an advocate for free enterprise, limited government, medical freedom, and uh, and give people a, a hope that uh, there are better ways to get great medical care at a fraction of today's prices. And I, I don't think the answer will be so much in, in uh, political uh, or governmental responses, but uh, uh, Medicare, we know, is unsustainable. Medicaid is unsustainable. And so, therefore, they're going to have to deal with that. In the meantime... Employers are taking the lead around the country of, um, of getting uh, better outcomes for their uh, employees through direct payment uh, to uh, medical uh, providers, whether it's doctors or hospitals or other institutions. So I'm hoping that this book can generate enough interest that we have a national dialogue. Whereas right now, the dialogue is 
how much more should government do for for people's medical care? And that's the wrong question. Yeah. The question should be, what's the best way for people to get quality medical care at lower prices? And that and that the answer is it's it's not a government program. That's the answer. And so this, uh, I would love to debate Bernie Sanders or anyone else in Congress or anyone else in uh, the medical field that, sa- that says we need a government single payer. And the answer is no, we need an individual family single payer. And that's the dialogue we should be having in this country. Unfortunately, uh, people who want a government single payer are not interested in engaging with people like myself with a different point of view because um, uh, they know they can't win that argument. And so therefore, I urge people to buy the book, Universal Medical Care, from conception to end of life, the case for a single-payer system, and the single-payer is the individual family. I think we're on the threshold of really reversing what we've seen, the encroachment of the government in medical care. And I think if we people uh, are educated, and that's really what the book does, is educate people and lays out a roadmap. I don't think it's the final roadmap. I think that's why we should have this discussion. What's the best way to get from where we are today, this hybrid system, to free market medical care, which would cover everybody, as I point out in, in, in the book? All right, great. So in addition to the book, are there any other links you'd like for me to post where people can follow you? No, I think the the, the, the link to the book would be great because uh, the more people that buy the book, I mean, I'm setting a goal of 100,000 ebooks. That would provide me with hundreds of thousands of dollars that I could donate. And so if one person tells 10 people and those 10 people tell another 10 people, that's one person can get 100 books sold. So, I mean, the numbers are there. I mean, a nation of 330 million people selling 100,000 sounds like a lot, but it's a drop in the bucket of how many people would be interested in, in, in seeing America's health system, medical care system, be transformed where they are in charge that, that reduces their expenses and provides them with better coverage. I mean, how could you not support that? I mean, even people on the left should support that uh, because they're ideologically committed to this, what, government approach to, a, to, uh, to medical care. All right, great. Well, Murray, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. I'll make sure to link to that. I'll grab my copy and encourage everyone else to get theirs as well. Thank you, James. It's been a great pleasure being with you. Uh, We covered a lot of the territory, and now it's up to the American people to decide, do they want to take charge of their life or they want to keep on outsourcing uh, a good portion of their life to government officials and bureaucrats? Amen to that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, James. All right. Thanks again to Murray for joining me today, and thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget to hit up footballinsideredge.com, offer code BLACKBIRD at checkout. That is today's sponsor, and they are really eager to hear from you. If you haven't already, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address, and if you would like to get these interviews a week or two early, make sure to sign up for one of the paid options. You can pay either $7 a month or $70 a year, which if you are as math challenged as I am, that's two free months. In addition to early episodes, you get the pre-show banter where we're, you know, setting up for the interview, maybe getting to know one another if we've never talked before, that kind of thing. And of course, in addition to that, if and when I produce premium written content, you'll get access to that as well. With that, this is another episode of Blackburn in the can. Until the next one, live free. (laughs) 